Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. Um, just to remind you of where we are, we've, we've started the story of Nehemiah. We've gone through um, the book of Ezra and we have gotten the, had the privilege of, of seeing Nehemiah's faithfulness in prayer last week. Remember, he spends four months in prayer over the dilemma that is laid before him. Um, so, I, uh, I did not, I clearly didn't remember or didn't finish the PowerPoint this morning. So, I'm going to give you the outline if you're taking notes. I'm just going to give you the, the uh, let's see, there's one, there's five main labels in the outline. Uh, those would be setting, Nehemiah's condition, Nehemiah's predicament, Nehemiah's request, and then our conclusion. Um, so, just if you're following along and you want to make that, that's setting Nehemiah's condition, Nehemiah's predicament, and then Nehemiah's request, and then our conclusion. So, let's talk first about the setting here before we read the text of chapter 2. Uh, we're going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. But just to set it for you, to remember where we are, Nehemiah has been praying for four months. He's burdened by the people of Israel and the struggle that they're having. They've gone back to the land and Nehemiah got a report from uh, his brothers that things are not good. Things are bad, that there's shame and evil going on and there's difficulty and the walls are burned down and there's no protection or defense from the outside world. And not only that, but the people are behaving Wickedly, And so Nehemiah is burdened for this, and he's been praying for four months. Uh, he's been four months of everyday work. He has not been sad in the king's presence, which we will find out soon. He's been four months of everyday work before the king. Uh, praying constantly, but also alone. That feeling of working every day, grinding out your job, and no one seems to know what's going on in your heart. That's what Nehemiah's predicament has been for the last four months. And this story begins in a time of celebration. And I'll explain that when we start um, looking at the text. But let's read chapter 2, verses 1 through, um, verses one through 10. And then we're going to jump down to verse 19. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes... When wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. 
And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that they may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted to me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river. Now that the king had sent me with the officers of the army and the horsemen. But when Sanballat, the, Sanballat the, Horna, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly, and someone, and someone had come to seek the, that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Jump down to verse 19 and 20. When, but when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it. They jeered and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, as we've already established, Nehemiah's been praying for four months. And he's been working every day for four months at his job. He's been going in and out before the king. He's the cupbearer to the king. And he walks in, and that cupbearer was somebody who was uh, kind of low-level, mid-management advisor. Um, not advisor as in respected among the people, but advisor as in he's there all the time. He's there all the time. So the king knows him really well. And he's tasting the king's food to make sure the king is not poisoned. So he's there making sure that the king is getting the right kind of food. He's a butler. And he's a butler who the king knows. Not just some random servant. So he's mid-level. But he's also not free to speak. He's not free to walk in and give advice. He has to be asked. He has to be talked to. And can you imagine every day going to work knowing that the person that can answer your great soul-wrenching problem is the one you are handing the drink to who asks you questions like, oh, it's good to see you today, Nehemiah. Is the food good today? Is this good today? What, what do you think is going to be good on the menu today? Nehemiah, did you do anything this weekend? Was anything going on? And you are day in and day out looking at this king going, if you would just ask the right question, I would ask him. I would tell him. I'd tell him what's going on. If, you just, if, if, if the door just opened a little, I'd run right through it. For four months this has been going on for Nehemiah. He's weighed down. He's burdened. And we saw that last week. We saw that he's constantly in prayer. That he's laid before the Lord his, his prayers and concerns. And he's consistent in worship in the midst of a secular world. He lives in Susa. It's not, it's not, the, uh, not the pinnacle of worship for the Jews. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not in the place where everybody is you know, 
excited to go to worship every morning. He's in a place where people wonder why on Sabbath day he's going to synagogue. Where they're going, I guess that's good for you. I don't need to do that. I don't, you know, I don't worship that. So I'm, I guess that's good for you. I'd rather go fishing on Saturday. Like that's the, that's where he is. He's in that place where people are, they're not necessarily angry at him for his religion, but they're kind of dismissive. You know, and he's a servant of the king. So he's constantly called before the king to do menial tasks and to do simple things and to make sure the king's food is prepared right and to make sure those things. And he has the ear of the king only when it is absolutely appropriate for him to have the ear of the king. For four months, he's been laboring. And Nehemiah, led by the Spirit, feels this greatly. And we see this in some of the phrases in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 12. It says, God put it in his heart. He accomplished what God put in his heart to do. And in Nehemiah 7, 5, God put it in his heart. Nehemiah first has a deep calling to do something. A burden. And it came to him four months prior. And it has been sitting in his heart for four months. He's got this deep burden to do something here. And Nehemiah hears of what's going on. And then because of the faithful prayer and following the Lord, he, uh, he, he moves in this circumstance. The circumstance opens up and he, he jumps at it. He jumps at it. Now, we can pause here and ask the question, how do we know that the Lord is calling us to do something? There's a great many, I told you when we started Nehemiah, there's a great many lessons we can learn, a great many applications we can learn, and this is one of them. Uh, but there's tons. You can read through Nehemiah multiple times, and you'll get leadership lessons, you'll get uh, good work ethic lessons, you'll get constant lessons about what to do well and how to do things well in life. And this is one of them. How do we hear, or how do we know what the Lord is calling us to do from Nehemiah. So in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick. This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city the place of my father's graves lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I love that last line there. I prayed to the God of heaven. Um, Nehemiah has a calling to do something. He's led by the Spirit to do it. How, does he, how do we know? So, first thing we can learn from Nehemiah is you find your calling and you understand your calling and what God is calling you specifically to do through faithful prayer. Through faithful and consistent prayer. It's been four months of praying. Four months of praying is not a long time. Just let that land on you. Four months of praying is not a long time. But we think it's a long time. When we read that, we go... Four months, that's not a long time. That's a short amount of time to be spending in laborious prayer. But for us, it is a long time. Just let that conviction land on you. 
Just let it land on you. Let that hurt a little bit. It should. It hurts me, and I pray a lot. I pray often. I have a very disciplined prayer life, and it's still, it's like that's four months. I'm going, that's a long time to pray for one thing. But then I remember that I've got these notebooks that I pray through daily that I've been praying through for eight years. Some of the requests in there are eight years old. And we've been praying for our impossible prayers for eight years as a church every Sunday. And every day for us, we've been praying for these impossible prayers and yet we still pray for them. Four months is not a long time to pray for one thing. And yet... It feels like a long time when we say it out loud, doesn't it? That should be convicting to us. Faithful prayer in in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 18 says, Rejoice always, and then the next word, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstance, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. As Christians, we are to rejoice always. We are to always rejoice in sad times and in good times and in Danger times and in safety times and peaceful times and in war times. We are to pray. We are to rejoice always. And we rejoice because we know the Lord, the God of heaven, who rules over all things. And we have nothing to fear. So we can rejoice over everything all the time because we know God. First Thessalonians is just very replete with this idea that because we know the Lord, we have the ability to rejoice in all circumstances. And then he follows that by saying, pray without ceasing. We are to pray continually. You are to be in constant prayer with the Lord. Again, I said it last week, don't let that pass you by. You have a constant open door to the God of creation. The Lord who holds all things in his hands. The one who makes the makes your heart beat and your air move through your lungs and come in and out. The one who gives you the automatic reflex to uh, breathe. You have constant connection here. You have the ability to speak to the God of heaven. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ for you. Is God's will for you that you would do this. Second, so we've got faithful prayer first. Second, you have faithful study. Faithful study of the word. Nehemiah is faithful to study the law. And we know that because as we read through Nehemiah, he keeps quoting it. And he keeps coming back to it. And one of his big things at the end of Nehemiah is, Ezra, get up and read the law. So he's about the law. He's been studying the word of God. The Bible. He's been studying the first five books of the Bible. He knows the Torah and he has been using the Torah, studying the Torah, and he's faithfully studying the Torah. So you want to know how you can hear God's call. First, faithful prayer. Second, faithful study of Scripture. Faithful study of the Word of God. Studying the Word of God, doing it the right, doing it right, studying it well, reading it for what it says. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. You should know this scripture. It's so beautiful. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness that the man of God might be equipped for every good work. Every good work. Every calling you have. Everything is shaped through a right understanding of the word of God. So faithful prayer, faithful study. 
Faithfulness also, the third one, faithfulness to community. How can we hear God's call and know his calling? Faithfulness to the community of faith. Nehemiah has brothers in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 2. My brother Hanani came to me. He has brothers that he hears from. He has he knows of circumstances because he's around the community of faith and he yearns and longs for the community of faith. The community of faith is to build each other up. We are to work together to build one another up. We work together to build each other up. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 uh, through 25 say this similar concept. Let us consider, in Hebrews chapter 10, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another as you see the day drawing near. Man, I love that, that tender-hearted response of the author of Hebrews. He says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. That's the, that's the idea. Let's, let's consider how to do that. And then he says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. You hear that gentleness in that rebuke? Like, listen, we got brothers and sisters who have, who have fallen into the habit of not meeting together. And like, let's not do that. Like, don't. Let's not do that. Some, some of us have. Some of us do that. Some of us drift into this pattern of, of neglecting the gathering of the saints. And he is talking, just to be clear, the author of Hebrews is talking about the weekly gathering with the saints. Like the gathering together with the saints for worship. He is addressing that. This, what we're doing. So kudos. You, you don't have to feel guilty about not neglecting at this moment. But... Uh, he he's so gentle in what he says, not neglecting. Has this become habit for some? Like let's let's buckle down, figure out how we can encourage one another and stir one another up to love and good works. To stir one another up to love and good works, and encouraging one another as you see the day drawing near. When persecution comes in this country, don't be deceived. It's going to. When persecution comes in this country, you're going to need each other. You're going to need the saints. You're going to need the body of Christ. You're going to need to know the ancient saints. Read church history. We need each other. We need the testimony of those who have come before us. Hebrews chapter 11. We need the testimony of the great cloud of witnesses. We need the testimony of faith. We need each other. Nehemiah had the brothers. He had brothers and sisters in the faith that he was faithfully communicating and catching and, and living with and talking to. Fourth, so you've got faithful prayer. How do we hear? How do we know our calling from the Lord? Faithful prayer. He's been praying for four months and constantly. And that last phrase in there, when the opportunity arises, what's the first thing he does? I prayed to the God of heaven. So he prays to the God of heaven. He's faithfully praying. He is faithfully studying. He is faithful to the community of, of believers. He's faithful to the community, his community of Israel and the people of God. He is faithful there. And then fourth and finally, uh, I think we can see that circumstantial opportunity is a big one here. You find out 
what God's calling you to do because you walk the path that God has laid out for you. It's circumstance. There's a great quote in a book. Um, I think it's in Bark of the Bog Owl, which we have on the back table. Uh, there's a great quote. It says, live the, life as, live the life as it unfolds before you. Close enough. <laughs> I mean, right? I was, that was, yeah, live the life as it unfolds before you. And that's beautiful. It's a beautiful phrase because that's what we see in Scripture is these men of God and women of God who have gone before the Lord and life just kind of unfolds in front of them. And they walk as it unfolds in front of them. We are to live the life as Christians. That nails it. We are to live the life as God unfolds it before us, walking through the doors he opens for us when he opens them. Because of our faithful prayer, our faithful study of Scripture, and our faithfulness to the community, we are able to see when circumstances open whether or not we should go through. And we do so... When they open, look for open doors and feel the nudge of God. There's a tremendous example of this in Paul in the book of Acts. When he goes to some cities and he walks right in and he begins to preach the gospel. And then he goes to some cities and he's quiet. Because he's paying attention to the nudge of God, to the community around him, to his constant prayer life, to the study that he is engaged in all the time. He is paying attention to those things so when he walks into a place he can follow the voice of the lord it's like the jack in the box right the pop goes the weasel that one right that thing and it pops you out and the first time you hear it it scares you as a kid and you do it you do it for your kid and then it pops out and your kid cries and you're like this was a bad idea right and you're like this is an awful toy you push it back down and you do it again, and the kid's watching, and this time he kind of expects it and pops and scares him a little bit. And you push it back down, and you do it again. And the third time, he's like, yay, again! And then you're like, this is an awful toy. I have to do this forever. Right? This is, this is, anybody, am I the only bad father that does that? This is, <laughs> da, 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 pop, and then the kid, you know, and he's excited about it. And, and the kid learns the music. He learns the music, and then he knows when it's coming, and he knows... When to respond, I tell you, if you walk with the Lord long enough, that's kind of how life becomes. You walk with the Lord in faithful prayer, faithful study, faithful community, and in paying attention to the circumstances around you. And and what you're going to see is you're going to start to hear the music. You start to hear the music and the rhythm of the Lord as he leads you and guides you. You're going to start to know, okay, this is a circumstance I'm supposed to walk through. This is one I'm not supposed to walk through. You're going to start to hear it, and you're going to start to do it. So how do we know the calling of the Lord? Faithful prayer, faithful study, faithfulness to community, and circumstantial observation. Now, Nehemiah has a predicament here. In verse 2, he says, he hadn't been sad before the king. He comes before the king, and it says, And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And I was much afraid. So Nehemiah has a predicament. You see, he goes before the king and he takes the king the thing and the king, he takes the king the wine, he delivers it, and it's good wine, hopefully, and the queen is next to him. So we know that there's a celebration going on here because the queen is next to him and in Persia, that, that probably wouldn't have happened unless there was some sort of event. This is the queen sitting next to him. So this is some sort of event, either a celebration time or the king is getting... Uh, 
time with his wife and family, uh, which is abnormal again in Persia. The Persian kings did not spend time with their kids. They, uh, they spent time with other political officials. They were kind of hierarchy. They thought of themselves as gods. In fact, Xerxes calls himself a god multiple times in his own writings. And Artaxerxes, no better. Uh, Artaxerxes is known in Persia as the king of blood. He's known as a king of blood. He murdered his own brother so he could get to the throne. He's a very dangerous man. And if you spoke out of turn in the Persian court, there were laws about how you were to die immediately. And somebody was to cut your head off right there. So, Nehemiah, this is his daily life. And he walks over to the king and gives him this. And the king says, why are you sad? Now, this could go either way. This could be, why are you sad? I don't want a sad person in my court. Hey, kill him and get me a new cupbearer. Or, the, it could go the way that it does. Why are you sad? You're not sick. This is clearly a heart issue. You're depressed. And everybody sees it, Nehemiah. Now, he could yell at Nehemiah. He'd tell him, you have to cheer up or get out. And by get out, he means die. So, this is a life-threatening moment. So, for Nehemiah to tell you, and I was afraid. He should be. He should be afraid. This is a moment where his life could end. Now, here's the question that we can draw from Nehemiah. What convictions do you have in life that you would be willing to die for if somebody asked you a simple question? What convictions would you be willing to die for if somebody asked you a simple question? And I hope that rings in your ears and you recognize what those convictions should be. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is God Almighty. He died on the cross and rose again. My sins are forgiven in Him. I have life in Him and He's coming back. To get me. All good reasons to die. All good things to die for. And Nehemiah is asked very plainly by this king who could kill him. What is the subject matter on your heart? Also remember that Artaxerxes is the one that canceled the building project. He's the one that heard. I think what it's I have it here. Years before, in Ezra chapter 4, verse 17, he's the one that halted the building project, maybe year, 13 years prior. He's the one that, that halted it. He's the one that stopped it. And he said, no more building in Jerusalem, this rebellious city. No more building there. What's heavy on Nehemiah's heart is the rebuilding of the city that Artaxerxes stopped the building of. Now it's resumed. Under Ezra, it's resumed. But he stopped it. And he stopped it for a reason. They are a rebellious city. So Nehemiah has trepidation. And he's sad in front of the king. And he's afraid. And sadness and fear overwhelm him in this circumstance. And he has to answer Nehemiah. He has to answer the king. And I want to ask you again. Do you have convictions about things that the Lord has put on your heart that you feel so strongly about that you would be willing to die if someone asked you, what's on your mind? 
What's on your heart? What's going on? Why are you sad? And you knew the reason you were sad, this king could answer or obliterate. I hope that that we as a people here at Sovereign Grace Fellowship are so strong in the faith that when someone asks us to recant or to turn away or what's on your mind and we have to give a brazenly faithful answer to the gospel of Jesus Christ that we will do so and accept what comes without hesitation. Nehemiah was afraid. A second application we can draw from Nehemiah just by word of encouragement is sometimes sadness and fear are okay for you. You are allowed to be sad and afraid. Nehemiah is not rebuked for being sad and afraid. He's not torn down for being sad and afraid. You know one of the first laws of war in the Bible? If you're afraid, don't go to war. Did you know that? If you go read the Deuteronomy Code, it says when you're afraid, don't go to war. Now, that's an odd one because Gideon, the judge, is described as a man of weak knees, which means afraid. The wording is the same. In Deuteronomy, it says if your knees shake, if you're afraid, that's the way it says it. If your knees shake, don't go to war. Gideon is called to lead the army by God, and he's called a man whose knees shake. I tell you that God can work through a man who is afraid. And that even in the Old Testament, even in the Old Testament law, there was grace given to the people of God who would be faithful in spite of fear. Who would be faithful to obey the Lord in spite of fear. So it's okay to be afraid. It's okay to be depressed. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to have these difficulties. So take heart, believer. It's okay to have fear. So Nehemiah, we see that he is sad, he's afraid, and here's his predicament. His Here's his predicament. His disciplined, faithful walk with the Lord will not permit him to not say anything. He is like Jeremiah, who says, there is fire in my bones when I try to hold this in. He can't hold it in. There is a predicament here. His disciplined, constant prayer life has been the catalyst for this action. And now he is strong enough to walk through it, and he's faithful enough to go through it, and he hears the opportunity open up, and the Lord, the, the Lord opens the door with Artaxerxes, and he goes, all right, I'm going, and he tells him, why shouldn't I be sad? My homeland lies in ruins. My homeland lies in ruins. The gates are burned down, and there's, it's awful. Why shouldn't I be sad where the graves of my fathers are gone? Now, pay close attention. Did you notice what he didn't say? He didn't say Jerusalem. He said the land of Judah, the graves of my fathers. Nehemiah is smart. When he presents this to the king, he leaves out the word Jerusalem, which is the word that would have triggered in the king's brain that rebellious city, Jerusalem, where kings of old rebelled against my ancestors. It would have triggered it in his brain. So what does he do? He leaves that out. He goes... Judah, the land of my fathers, the land where my fathers are buried. That's the place 
Why shouldn't I be sad when it's destroyed? And he leaves out Jerusalem when talking to the king. There are times when you have to speak to the people and you need to use the right words at the right time. Praise the Lord that we have the Spirit of God living in us and he brings to remembrance all the things we have lost, uh, that we have learned when we need them. We have learned when we need them. Our faithful, disciplined, constant prayer is the catalyst for right action here. Now we come to Nehemiah's request in verse 4. So go down to verse 4. Right before, uh, right before he makes the request, it says, The king said to me, What are you requesting? The king asked him straightforward. You're sad. Nehemiah, this is a polite way of saying, Nehemiah, what do you want? What do you want from me? This, the king moves from, Oh, Nehemiah, you're sad, to, All right, business. Let's talk business. Okay, so let's talk business. What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. So Nehemiah has the opportunity, and the first thing he does is a quick prayer. Just a note of application. Before you do something, pray. I can't, this is going to come up over and over and over again in Nehemiah. When you have a big decision, pray first. Pray fast first. If you can't pray and fast first, don't make the decision until you can. This is a quick momentary prayer. He makes this prayer quickly. He's in the middle of it. It's not... This isn't a, okay, King, just wait. I'm going to go back here for an hour. I'm going to make some notes in my prayer journal and come back. No, this is a, a Lord, Lord God, help me. All right, King, this is what I want to ask. And he lays out this request. And this request is very thorough and very good. It's almost as if someone somewhere had scripted this request and had decided that this is the way it's going to be. If you're not catching what I'm saying, the Lord has already worked through Nehemiah, and the Spirit of God is going to make the request through Nehemiah the right way, because Nehemiah has been faithfully in prayer, faithfully studying, faithful with the community, and he's been watching for the circumstance. He is prepared for this. He's prepared for this, not because he's been writing out this stuff to get it ready, because he's been walking with the Spirit, who will speak through us the things we cannot understand. Romans 8 promises us that the Spirit groans. With, when we can't speak, the Spirit groans on our behalf. He speaks on our behalf when we don't know the words. So we can trust Him in this. And Nehemiah goes before the king and he gives this request. Sometimes our prayers are quick like this one. Lord, help us. And then we speak. This kind of moment for Nehemiah has been fortified through his long-suffering, long-term discipline. Long-suffering, long-term discipline. Nehemiah is an old saint. You don't get to be an old saint overnight. It takes time and it takes work. Old saints are old saints partly because they're older. Because they've been around. They've been working on it. Now, there are old people who are not old saints. And there are younger people who are old saints. But the reason they're old saints is because of long-term walking with the Lord and disciplined life with Him. Old saints do not become old saints overnight. Jeremiah, I mean, Nehemiah has become an old saint. And he lays this request before the king. 
in the power of the Spirit. And look at what he says. In verse 5, he wants to rebuild the king. He wants to rebuild the house. If I found servant, if I found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. This is the first request. Let me rebuild it. Note he doesn't mention Jerusalem again. He says Judah. And the request is to go for personal reasons. He tells the king, this is a personal matter to me. This is where my fathers are buried. This is a personal matter to me. Let me rebuild the walls. This means something to me at my heart. It's why I'm burdened. So he's burdened here. He tells the king, this is a personal matter. I want to rebuild the walls of this city. In verse 6, the second request. And the king said to me, the queen sitting by him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Nehemiah then looks at the king and gives him a specific time. We don't know what the time he said is. We can surmise that it was about 12 years. Because that's how long Nehemiah is gone from Susa before he returns. We can surmise maybe it's around 12 years. We don't know if Nehemiah gave him less time. Some scholars think that Nehemiah doesn't include the time here because it was less than 12 years. And he knows you'll do the math when you get later on in the book. Um, more than likely, Nehemiah told him, until this is accomplished is what I need. I need to do it until this is accomplished. Well, how long is that going to take, Nehemiah? I don't know, 12 years, somewhere around there. Um, I'll be gone for, for a while. And the king, please, it pleases the king that he has a definite time to let him go. So Nehemiah uh, goes for an appointed time. He goes to rebuild the wall. And he goes to an appointed time. We know it's 12 years that he's gone, by the way, from chapter 5, verse 14, and chapter 13, verse 6. He's gone for 12 years. Then he goes back to Susa, and then he returns again to Jerusalem after that in, in chapter 13, verse 6. So um, Nehemiah asks for an appointed time. He asks to rebuild, and he asks for an appointed time. And he pleases the king when the king is given an appointed time. Now, this world clamors for us to give them an appointed time. I don't know if you noticed in the scripture when you read Jesus walking, the Pharisees and the Jews are always asking, what time? When? When? How long do I have? How long do I have? When? When? And Jesus keeps giving them answers like, nobody knows but the Father. That's not for me to tell you. It's not your business. When you see the, the vultures circling, you'll know it's done. That's his answer. They say, when will we know that the, that the Son of Man has come in judgment. And he says, you'll see the vultures circling. In other words, you're already dead by the time that happens. Like he's, he looks at them going, you'll see the birds of carrion flying overhead. And you'll know, oh, it happened. Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye, it's going to be like you blinked. And all of a sudden, it's going to be done. In other words, stop waiting. This, the message is the same every time. Stop waiting. The Lord can come now. Stop. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ now. You don't have the next blink of an eye. That's the point. Over and over and over we see this in Scripture. And here, Nehemiah leaves out the appointed time. And I think that we can rest in this, this side truth that the Holy Spirit has kind of dictated this way that... that the appointed time that's given to the king gives the king some comfort. But he's not part of the kingdom of God. He's the Persian king. 
And they clamor for time periods and points of time. And we can rest in the confidence that our God is the one who makes the time happen. You can rest in that confidence. You can rest in the sovereignty that God knows what he's doing. And it's happening in his timing. I don't care who the president is next year. God is still king over all things. And he appoints and tears down leaders at his will. You know, we could have the worst president in history show up next year. Somebody you don't even think is going to be there. It could be some Joe Smo off the street that walks in and a third party candidate. And all of a sudden we've got this third party and he's horrible and wicked and evil. And God can bring him to repentance and change his heart like that. And all of a sudden, our nation could suddenly see revival. Or we'd have the worst king in history and persecution could come. And we could begin to grow and see the power of God manifest in martyrdom and persecution. Yet not I, but Christ who is in me. I will walk to the flames and say, I'm not afraid. I'm strong. And I'll know it's because Jesus is in me. We can do those as well. So he asks for an appointed time. Nehemiah gives him one. And then verses 7 and 9. Look at verse 7 here. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give to me timber and make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the walls of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of God was on me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers and the army of the army and horsemen. So Nehemiah asks for military escort and he asks for political authority. His, second, his, third requ- or his third request is military escort and uh, political authority. Now, 13 years prior when Ezra went, he didn't ask for those things. And if you remember when we talked about that in Ezra, it was a source of nervousness for Ezra. He was a little nervous about it. He was like, I should have asked for guards. But Levites, we're going. And they go, right? And they gather all the people of Israel and they go. And there's this beautiful faith in God. And we learn that we can have faith in the Lord to provide and protect Ezra was leading people to trust the law of God in the building of the house of God. Nehemiah is using the system that is around him to accomplish the same purpose. I tell you, there are different methodologies to accomplish the same principles. There are different methodologies to accomplish the same principles. As a church, we want to major on principles. When we pray for people, we are majoring on principles. We have methodologies. Methodologies are just that. They're methods to accomplish the principle. We want to major on principles. When we pray for other churches, we major on principle. Do they love the Lord? Do they know Jesus? Do they preach Jesus Christ, Savior, Lord, Him crucified, buried, resurrected, and returning? Do we, we know those things, so we pray for those things. These are principles that we pray for. We pray that the gospel would go forth. These are principles. Nehemiah and Ezra accomplished the same principle with different methodologies here, and that is okay in Scripture. That is okay. 
okay. As much as I don't like to say it's okay, because I prefer our methodology, <laughs> it is okay. Methodologies are just that. They're principles and methodologies. Ezra was right to refuse in Ezra 7, and Nehemiah is right to accept here. He uses the government system to his own benefit when he is able. Ezra, by the way, does this in another place where he uses Cyrus's edict to his own benefit. He uses the government's edict to his own benefit. Next, Ezra asks for housing and resources there in verse 8. You saw, give me a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, the guy that tells people what wood they can cut down and what wood they can't. And he's the governor of that area, kind of the, the uh, parks and rec, not park, wildlife preserve. That's kind of what this guy's job is. Wildlife preserve and timberland management. So he's that guy. So Asaph is that guy. And you have to go to him and say, I want so much wood to be cut down. And he's trying to make sure there's enough trees that are growing and enough trees that are grown for lumber for everybody. Uh, so this is the way. This is just forestry management. And so he's, he's doing that. And he's, he's given letters to him. Now, um, these... These things Nehemiah asks for in verse 8 were already allocated in Ezra. They were already allocated by the king for the people of Israel in Ezra. He's not asking for anything new. This was given earlier to Ezra. Nehemiah uh, is simply asking for what has already been promised. He's using, again, the government system to achieve the ends of God. And what does he say happens here at the end of that portion in verse 8? He says, and the king granted me what I asked. Why? For the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah, in the midst of this, recognizes I could have died by asking these questions. I could have died by telling the king I was sad and why I was sad. That could have happened. Obviously, God is in this. Obviously, God is in this. He says, the good hand of my God was on this. And Nehemiah here asks the king, essentially, for a career change. He tells the king, look, I'm middle management as a wine bearer, a cup bearer. I handle your food. I'm kind of a sous chef, kind of, that checks for poison. And he says, can you make me a governor? That's the guy that runs the barbecue place where the king likes to eat all the time. Asks, can I be the governor of this province? Like, it would be like if you were speaking to President Biden, and it's pretty apt for some of this, President Biden, and he said, why are you sad? What do you want? And you said, can you make me the governor of New Hampshire? Let me be in charge. And he goes, you work at a McDonald's. I just like your burger. <laughs> That's what this is like. So Nehemiah asks for this and gets it. And he's told, yes, you better believe the good hand of God is on this. There's no other way this could happen. And it works. And why does it work? Because God is sovereign and God is good. And when the Holy Spirit prompts you to do something, you should obey. Because either... Either it's going to go horribly wrong for you and you're going to love Jesus all the more and Jesus is going to get glory and you're going to die. Or 
It's going to work. But if you don't do it, it won't work. And will you really be able to live on the other side of the cowardice of not doing it? Thomas Cranmer is a great example of this. Thomas Cranmer was a, uh, a bishop in, in England during the time of Bloody Mary. And she uh, was persecuting Christians and burning them at the stake constantly. And Thomas Cranmer recanted. He fell in fear and cowardice and he recanted. And they, uh, he recanted and then he kind of kept doing it. Like he's, I'll just say that I'm not going to do it. And then he went and did it. And he said, I'm just going to say I'm not going to do it. And then he went and did it. And what he was doing was preaching a couple things and teaching a few things and, and validating a few things. He was teaching that Scripture alone is the chief authority in the church. He was teaching that by Christ's death and resurrection, you have salvation and life. And only by that, not by sacraments or by any action that you take. He was teaching that transubstantiation is not the truth that Jesus is bodily resurrected and ascended into heaven and will return. He was teaching those three things in accords with Reformation truths, sola fide, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola de la gloria, and sola Christus, by Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, through scripture alone, in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. He was teaching those five simple things that we take for granted as just true. And they kept telling him, recant or we're going to burn you. And he would go, all right, I'll recant. Now, eventually the time came when they caught him and he could no longer recant. And it was a, listen, we see that you keep lying to us. You keep recanting. He made public declarations. Can you imagine made public declarations, and they finally get him up into, into a pulpit, and they tell him, you have to say, you have to say it in front of everybody. We want you to say it in front of everybody. And they put him in some cathedral, packed cathedral. We have a, a testimony from Thomas Cranmer, who's going to testify to the glory of the Catholic Church. And he stands up, he puts his hands in, he starts the discussion, and he can't do it. And he finally says, no. I will not recant Jesus Christ. I will not recant. And then they light the fire to burn him. It's right there. Like they take him out and they light the fire to burn him. And he walks to the fire and he puts his hand in the fire and he says, this hand that has rejected my Lord be burned off first. And the story goes, the fire leapt up his hands and consumed him. Thomas Cranmer could not live a full life past that opportunity. So we need to understand there are some convictions that are so great that if we don't do them, our life is not worth living here. And this is the one. The truth of Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord, is the one thing if we don't do them, life on the other side is not going to be worth living. Nehemiah comes before the king and makes this request. And it's an absurd request. And it's granted by the good hand of God. But I want you to understand, if it hadn't been granted, if he had died, it still would have been a better option 
than if he'd said nothing. If he'd avoided the call of God and stood back. Because life on the other side of that is awful. And we serve a gracious and loving God who meets men like Thomas Cranmer and calls them to himself and pulls them to himself. And maybe, maybe you'll get another chance to submit to that. Maybe not. And I don't know about you, it's not worth it to me to live on the other side of rejecting the call of God. It's not worth it to me to do that. Now, finally, Nehemiah, after this glorious moment, goes to the land and immediately we are told what happens. Opposition. Opposition happens. People rise up against them. He shows up in the land and nobody wants him there. Nobody wants him there. When things go well and you have confessed the Lord, that does not mean things are going to be easy. The world is still going to despise you. The world is still going to reject you. Things are still going to look weird. If you are living for your faith, what does the scripture say? You will have times of trouble. You will meet trouble. You will meet persecution. It will happen. Now, it may not happen this way. You may not stand before a king and the king is, it may not be life or death for you. But it might be friendship and loneliness. It might be the difference between a job promotion and no job promotion. It might be politics or no politics. It might be those things. It might be very strained and stressful times versus easy street. It might be those things that amount to your trouble. And yet... We are told to follow hard after the Lord in verse 10 and in verse 19. We see Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this and it displeased them greatly. Yeah, when you obey the Lord, you're going to displease somebody. Somebody's going to be mad because you're not obeying them. You're obeying the Lord. I tell you, there's coming a time in our country and in our world when we will obey the Lord and the government will be angry at us for it. In fact, we already saw that just a couple years ago. I was on BBC News. And they tried to trap me with some of their wording. They tried to get me to say things that made me sound crazy. And the Lord was good and gracious and merciful. And when I responded with patience and the Spirit moved, we saw great Discussion. We saw a great opportunity for the gospel arise. All because I told them that, no, we're not going to obey the authorities that tell us to get an untested, unworked vaccine. And we're not going to tell our people that they have to do what the government tells them. We are going to tell them to listen to the Spirit of God and obey their conscience. And if they feel like they need to, fine. If they feel like they shouldn't, fine. It's a conscience matter. I remember standing in front of them and telling them that. The emails I got, they were ridiculous. From all over the world. From people all over the world. People who thought that I was a hero for standing up against vaccinations. And I wrote back kindly, listen, I'm not standing up against anything. I'm telling you to obey the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God moves in the people. I teach the Bible. 
and I teach you how to listen to the Spirit. That's what I do. And so you listen to the Spirit of God and do what He tells you. And I have opinions. That's not what I was sharing. And then I had other people. You're of the devil because you told people people are going to die. I was like, people are already dying. They die constantly. Do you know Jesus? Because you're going to die soon. That was, that was the response I gave to those. We see that there are opportunities when the Lord gives us that we have to walk through. And when we walk through them, we want the Spirit of God guiding us. And the Spirit of God guides us through faithful prayer, faithful study, faithful community, and paying attention. And when we do that, opposition is going to arise. So what's our conclusion here? You see, our conclusion is pretty obvious. The modern church is not much different than Jerusalem. And I hate to say that. Modern church in the West is not much different than Jerusalem in this book. They've intermarried their faith. They've synchronized things. And I said they because it's what we're pushing against. It's what we're pushing against here. But they are us. They are us, but, but they are also they. We're pushing against that tendency to synchronize worship, to, 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 surrender, uh, to surrender the truth of God for comfort. And, and we, I, I have very strong opinions. I'm trying to be very measured, and that's why I'm stumbling to not go overboard and have Andrew go in the back. Um, now... The modern church is not much different. Humanism, nationalism, a lack of scripture, a failure to be marked by love, a consistently known for fighting. You know, if you ask somebody who's not in the church, what's the church like? They're like, they argue about everything all the time. They hate each other. and They always hate other people. So hateful. And here's the problem. Some of that's warranted. Because we have failed to love as a, as a church in the West. We have, we have failed to show people that we can stand up for what's right, condemn that which is wrong, and still love someone. And still care for people. Well, we're pushing against that. That's what we push against. That's what you push against. That's what I push against. Modern church is not much different than Jerusalem. And we stand before a culture in which we have been given all the tools, all the tools to engage. We've been given all the tools to engage. We fight against nationalism, humanism, a lack of understanding of Scripture, a failure to be marked by love, a constantly known for fighting, not to mention the constant wicked false gospels that are put all over the Internet. That people uh, herald. I have an entire, there's an entire, uh, I don't know if I call it a rest or relaxation that I do every week. Where I go on my social media feed and I get hammered with all these things. And so I copy and paste them and send them to my friends and say things like, this is why we can't have nice things. Episode two. (laughs) I think I'm on like episode 450. And all I have to do is send it to them, and they see it, and it's so goofy, they write back and go, seriously? And I go, seriously. And we have a good chuckle about it, but it's one of those, like, this is awful chuckles. That's the state of the church 
in our world. So how do we answer this world? How do we answer? First and foremost, what do you think my answer is going to be? Nehemiah, pray. We are going to pray. You need to have a disciplined prayer life that is constant. That will be what will undergird you. Pray. Second thing, refocus on the Scripture. Always the Scripture. Always the Bible. Listen, there are lots of great teachers. There are incredible books that you can read. I put them on the back. I put books on the back table. They're for you to take. I write you books so that you can read and grow in Scripture. I, there are incredible commentators. None of those take the place of Scripture. Read. Read copiously. Read lots of different viewpoints. Read Christians of history. Read the things people say. But understand that Scripture is the authority. Scripture is what has to undergird you. Scripture is what will be brought to mind when you face trials of various kinds. It will be the Scripture, the Word of God that brings to mind. Not something that R.C. Sproul said. Or something that John Elkins said. Or something, who's an opposite of ours? Something Brian McLaren said. You're not going to get that from any of them. What's going to undergird you and what's going to empower you and make you strong is the word of God. And finally, the last two would be, you need to prepare for the opportunity. And how do you prepare for the opportunity? By being in the community of faith, by praying, by studying scripture. Very last thing. How do we answer the world? We pray, we read Scripture, study Scripture, live Scripture, breathe Scripture, speak Scripture, eat Scripture. You know the Bible never says just to read the Bible. It actually says like eat it, feast on it, uh, labor with it, lay with it, keep it on you, meditate on it day and night. It never actually just says read it. It says all those other things. And that so implied, you know, like you're supposed to read it. That's implied. But the, the real thing is it's supposed to be your very life's breath. Third, you're supposed to be preparing for the opportunity. And how do you prepare for the opportunity? Faithful prayer, faithful uh, faithful study, faithful community, and looking at the circumstances around you and paying attention, being alert, as Peter would put it. And then finally, be ready to fight. Be ready to fight. And our weapons are not flesh and blood. They are love and sound mind. We fight with the weapons of love and grace and mercy to other people. Service to others. That's how we fight the war. Be ready. There is coming a day when persecution will rise. And we will, as Christians of old, stand again. Faithfully testifying to the word of God. And we do that by this simple truth. Pray. Be faithful to study the word. Be faithful in the community and be ready. Be alert. Fight against sin, wickedness, and death with the weapons of love and grace. Lord, we pray, thank you for Jesus saving us and redeeming us, changing our souls that we could worship and know you fully and that we would stand in the day, in the day coming faithfully attesting to your word and your will. Lord, we love you and we trust you in all things. Amen.
as we come to a time of communion together, I 